And that was Dave Parker in the 1979 All-Star Game gunning down Brian Downing at the plate with a cannon for an arm. And in this podcast, I got an opportunity to talk to Dave Parker, the Cobra, about his book, The Cobra, and uh, how he's not in the greatest health in in recent years. And uh, there's a great special on MLB Network that highlights that, uh, unfortunately. But uh, I got a chance to talk to him, not very long, um, because he was on a press tour, and I was only able to get him about 15, 20 minutes. So hope you enjoy my conversation with Dave Parker. And then afterward, I thought about this. I said, well, Dave Parker should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. There's a lot of guys who should be in the Hall of Fame uh, that aren't for whatever reason. And so I came up with a list of guys that I think probably should be in there, and for whatever reason, for different factors, maybe playing on bad teams and didn't get the recognition, or they got wrapped up in the era of collusion, cocaine, steroids, whatever the case is, that they're not in the Hall of Fame. And it's not, we don't spend that much time talking about Pete Rose or Barry Bonds in this, but I thought Dave Parker is one of those guys who should be in that conversation. So I contacted my friend Rick Morris, longtime friend from fantasydrafthelp.com, and uh, we decided to go over it. We, we compared lists to see who should be in the Hall of Fame, and then we did a later podcast, which you'll have to subscribe to listen to, about who should probably not be in the Hall of Fame that is. So it's an interesting podcast, so I tried to extend it as long as I could. So the first part for the first 15 minutes, you'll hear Dave Parker, and then we talk about the best players not in the Hall of Fame with Rick Morris. So hope you enjoy that. And you could subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer for five bucks a month. You get conversations just like this as well as a lot of others. So I hope you are able to subscribe if you have a couple of I know we have a supply chain issue in the country, but if you if you want to have some extra good content for you, I try to pump out about four or five podcasts per week. So hope you enjoy that. So without further ado, we'll hear from Rick Morris later on, but wait, let me crank up the music here. Little Sister Sledge, We Are Family for that 1979 Pirates team. Give it up for the Cobra, Dave Parker. Tony Mazur here and uh, talking with Dave Parker, known as the Cobra. Well, that's also the name of his uh, new book, uh, Cobra, A Lifetime of Baseball and Brotherhood. It's available right now. It's a great book. It's uh, apparently, I I saw it said it was a 229,000 word manuscript. So they had to start cutting things down a bit uh, based on his career, but a 19 year baseball career. And it's just fantastic. And and it's a a pleasure to uh, to speak with you today, Dave. And I got to say, I loved looking at the table of contents because most of them were all songs of the era that you played in, like songs by the Gap Band and Stevie Wonder. It was just really fantastic. And it kind of played into your career because you've always had that that musical vibe of when you played baseball back in the day yeah i love um 70s music uh frankie beverly was one of my favorite 
And one thing about the We Are Family Pirates was that wasn't really the song that you wanted. You, you, I read somewhere you wanted Ain't No Stopping Us Now by McFadden and Whitehead, right? Right. That was the one that I wanted, but Willie wanted uh, the We Are Family, and what Willie wants, Willie gets. <laughs> Pops, yeah. That, I mean, the Lumber Company. Uh, so, you you know, you play, had great years with the Pirates, going to the Reds to your hometown, play with the A's, Brewers, Angels, Blue Jays. And I, I got to say, you know, when I was reading your book and talking about your upbringing in Cincinnati, you were you really didn't – I mean, you had aspirations of playing baseball, but you were a football player, and you wanted to play with Woody Hayes at Ohio State, right? Right. I wanted to be a, a Buckeye. And that was all. That was in my plans. I, I had a plan that I was going to play football and then play baseball, and uh, that got distorted when I tore my knee up in the first year of my well, my senior year, first play. Mm. I tore my knee up, and it changed my whole life. Yeah, and it really kind of turned things around for you because, especially with baseball, where there is a lot of wear and tear on your knees and your back and everything, but there's different ways of kind of mitigating that pain when you have that. As you know, and I played a lot of baseball growing up as well and still play it to this day. That if you have aches and pains, you can still manage in different ways. And I mean, heck, you played a two decade career and a lot of it on bad knees. So, how are you able to continue to sit? Because because you were playing in a in an era that was a very tougher era, in my opinion, I think tougher than it is today, where you had these injuries, but you didn't have the the medical care that is around nowadays. That a lot of it was kind of a cortisone shot, and uh, you're back to playing as aggressive as you did back in the day. Yeah, I uh, iced my knees and did everything and tough to keep me on the field. Uh, Stardew taught me that if you wanted to be a baseball star, you had to play with nagging injuries. And uh, I uh, wanted to be a star, and uh, I forced myself to play. And you were a star, and you came up, you were kind of in the shadow of Roberto Clemente, but you kind of took it in a different direction of somebody that, while... Well, he was, you know, he had the cannon for an arm. You had the cannon for an arm. He can hit. You can hit. But you took it in a more, in a direction where you became a true superstar, like just basically the Muhammad Ali of the game. And I, and I say this as somebody who's biased, but when you think back to the mid-70s and up until the, you know, early 80s, name me a better player in the game than Dave Parker. And that's why I believe you should be in the Hall of Fame. But you were the f- definition of a five-tool player back in the 70s. Yes, uh, I was a, a complete five-tool player. Uh, when you analyze my career and my ability to Clemente, uh, I've never said this. This is the first time I've ever said it, was uh, Clemente had above average throwing arm. I had above average throwing arm. Clemente hit with power. I hit with power, probably more power than than Clemente. Uh, I had Clemente had good speed. I had above average speed, probably faster. But if, if you analyze the the two players and their abilities and analyze the five tools that each player had, I think I I might surpass a lot of those guys. 
Yeah, and you really, I mean, you go from the 71 World Series with the Pirates, and then it just, it continues on where going throughout the 70s and just adding to that lumber company of uh, Al Oliver, obviously Pops was there, and you you join in uh, in 73 and 74 and full-time player and, again, best player in the game in those in those years. Bill Madlock comes around in the late 70s. And, I mean, talk about how those teams really just were a uh, j- just a force on the field and how uh, the importance of true leadership with having somebody like Willie Stargell, who he had his share of uh, people he mentored over time, but he mentored an entire team. He was basically a second manager in those days. Yes, he was. I mean, Willie and Chuck Tanner was ideal for that Pirate Ball Club. Willie stabilized the club by his leadership. And uh, don't forget, he did some hitting, too, because uh, his home run was a deciding factor in the Baltimore World Series in 79. Uh, but Willie was ideal. Uh, he he could have played for any club in, in baseball. Chuck Tanner was ideal, too, because he was a guy that uh, was ideal for the, the club that we had. Because he would manage with one eye and one ear which meant that he wouldn't see everything and wouldn't hear everything. So he, he gave us leeway and let us govern ourselves. So he was ideal for it. Yeah, that's uh, that's so important for a team that uh, – it, it just uh, an iconic team and uh, winning in seven games against that flashy Oriole team and, you know, the sister sledge we are family was playing. And, and around this time, of course, is that uh, you end up becoming the highest paid player in the game. Your first guy to make a million dollars a year. And unfortunately, he kind of fell out of favor in Pittsburgh with a lot of the fan base. And as, as somebody pointed out in the, the great documentary on MLB Network, said that a town like Pittsburgh just really didn't, you know, if, if, they, if you had black players in those days, that they wanted them to stay a little more humble. And you, in those days, you were anything but humble. And uh, you knew how good you were. And that was one of the problems. You kind of fell out of favor. And although, has, has, have you kind of, in a way, forgiven Pittsburgh and has forgive, Pittsburgh forgiven you over time? Has, has time healed things since then? Yeah, Pittsburgh is my favorite place, you know, because um, once a buckle, always a buckle. And uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pie. I, I go down as a pie. And uh, the fans were, they, 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 they treated me kind of bad. And they treated me bad after having... Uh, 1978, 1977 MVP. No, that was a bad title. 78 was the MVP and a bad title. And uh, took them to the series in 79. And uh, I like to say to the fans, how can you be mad at that? Yeah. But but looking back, and I think a lot of people have gone, you know, people have evolved hopefully since then. And uh, and you look back, and I always tell when I was coaching, there were a few players that I told them to go on YouTube to find their old highlights. One of them was George Brett, and George Brett was a guy that would hit 330, 325 every year, capable of hitting probably 45 home runs if he wanted to. But George Brett hit 20 home runs, and he hit for a high average and got a lot of hits and doubles. 
And Dave Parker, it was another one where I tell them to go on YouTube to look at your highlights to see what you would do. And you were a guy who was capable of hitting 50 home runs almost every year, but you didn't. You hit the ball hard. If it went over the fence, it's because you hit it hard. If it hit the fence or if it hit up the middle, it's because you hit it hard. And that 1979 All-Star game at the Kingdom was a human highlight reel. I mean, basically, you just go up and say that that was the Dave Parker game. That really put you over the top for a lot of people who and opened you up to a national audience. Yeah, that was um, a good game. I did something that wasn't done in baseball until I did it. I, I, I was um, awarded the MVP for defensive efforts. And uh, nobody had ever won MVP for defense. And I did it. It was unbelievable the throw, the two throws uh, throwing out. Uh, I believe it was Downing at the plate and Jim Rice over at third base, and it, it was incredible. And then you know you're a Cincinnati kid, you're an Ohio kid, and you finally you get your opportunity. So things kind of fall out of favor in Pittsburgh. You sign a big deal and you come home, and you have this resurgence. You should have been the MVP in my opinion the uh, the one year, and just an incredible time. Even if it was just a couple of years in Cincinnati, what was it like coming home? It was great coming home. You know, every kid want to play for his hometown team. And I was no different. And uh, it was uh, a thrill to be in the Reds uniform. And I had four outstanding years, uh, almost as good as my first five years in Pittsburgh. It was it was tremendous, and you were able to kind of you kind of did the Willie Stargell at that point in your career, where Willie took a lot of guys in Pittsburgh under his wing and mentored them, and then now all of a sudden you're this you're the veteran, you're ten plus years in the league. Now you're taking people under your wing. So Barry Larkin, the young shortstop, Eric Davis, who was uh, going to be one of the, the hot young players in the game, you took him under his wing. Uh, eventually, when you go to Milwaukee, you did the same thing for Gary Sheffield. But th- what was it like that you were mentored by Willie, and then now you were looked up the way you looked to Willie back in the Pittsburgh days? Well, Willie, I, I picked up that that from Willie. Willie taught me how to uh, extend myself to those who come behind me, and uh, I did that. And uh, Willie was the reason that I had that in my repertoire. Uh, if it wasn't for Willie, I, I, I probably wouldn't have did as much as I did in the major leagues because Willie took me on the wing and really played the father role and the big brother. So Willie was instrumental to my, my success. I love that story Barry Larkin tells where you basically told him you need to you need to have a sense of urgency if you want to keep playing in this league and uh and and Eric Davis tells the one story about how Don Robinson struck you out in Pittsburgh and you told him you know pick me up and he boy did he pick you up and that was a great opportunity for two teammates that okay yeah base is loaded and then Eric Davis goes on the first pitch and drives a ball into the upper deck uh it, it just it, it was a great story coming back to Cincinnati and you've and then and then you 
you know, even though you weren't able to, you didn't go to the parade in Pittsburgh, but you really enjoyed the second uh, second uh, World Series that you were able to get in Oakland. I wanted to ask you quickly about that. What was that like? So game three, 5.04 p.m. local time, and you guys are up 2 nothing in Oakland. You're playing in San Francisco, and the earthquake happens in 89. What? What what was going through your mind at that time when when that happened? Well, we had just missed uh, the quake. We were in between uh, the quake and the game. So uh, going across the bridge, first thing I thought about was where my where's my wife? Where's she at uh, during this quake? And she uh, missed it. She was in between the quake and the game too. So she made it after we found out that she was okay. Uh, I was ready to play. But then we found out the tragedy that had taken place uh, with the Bay Bridge. And uh, and kind of forgot about baseball. Yeah, a lot of people uh, didn't know at the time when it was happening. It was like, oh, it's an earthquake. It's California. But then the the destruction that happened. But, that you know, you won your World Series there. But a lot of players, uh, you know, I look to guys who played for a long time, like Tim Raines and Ricky Henderson. They played on random teams over o- over the course of a number of years. And... Um, that you you were able to kind of finish up like on a really high note, and you played for you played for the Blue Jays to end, but you also had the Angels in those days, and you got a chance to meet Muhammad Ali. What was that like meeting Ali? Um, it was a thrill. I always looked up at Ali's achievement and uh, how he put himself on the line. Would tell people I'm gonna knock him out in the second round. And uh, he knocked people out in the second round. You know, he he was the guy that put himself on the line and meant a lot to me. So meaning was a thrill. And unfortunately, you've been dealing with the same disease that he suffered with for so many years as well. How how have you been able to manage, especially in the last year since uh, COVID hit? Well, uh, I managed it pretty well. I mean, every day is a new adventure because Parkinson is uh, different. You you can be walking well one day and feeling good and come out the next day and you're not walking well and you're speaking real slow. So it, it's, it's an adventure. Every day is different. Well, I, I'm, I'm hoping the best for you. I know you're you've been dealing with this for a number of years, but uh, you know, I, ho- I hope you stay safe and uh, you know keep keep going on. And uh, I, I will do what I can to tell the the next generation to keep looking at players like Dave Parker and what they were able to do, their output, their leadership, their their flashiness, the fun on the field, and everything. And I urge everybody to go check out this book, Cobra, A Lifetime of Baseball and Brotherhood. Dave, it's been an honor to talk to you. And, you know, good luck with the book, good luck with everything, and I hope to talk to you down the road again. All right. I look forward to it. Yes, indeed. Welcome on back to the Check Your Brain podcast, the free version. And uh, with me is my longtime friend of Gosh, nearly 15 years since I've been in broadcasting, and uh, we worked together at a place that didn't pay us in the Cleveland area, <laughs> the, the great internet radio station up at 5500 South Marginal. And it's my good friend from uh, 
uh, the FDH Lounge and FantasyDraftHelp.com. And it's Rick Morris. Rick, uh, thanks for doing this. Hey, Tony, it's a pleasure to be on. And uh, yes, you're bringing up all kinds of memories from the network uh, those days down on the shores of Lake Erie. Oh, God. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a... Yeah, they're, you know, sometimes they're funny stories to tell now, and I'll tell them at a, another podcast, but my gosh, that uh, wasn't fun at the time, you know, when you're like, oh, when's my paycheck coming up? Oh, gosh, can you give us a, about another week or so? Oh, that's that's nice. <laughs> Isn't that the place that exemplified the notion of time plus distance equals comedy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> So uh, earlier here on this on the podcast that I have for the free version, uh, I got a chance to interview Dave Parker, the Cobra. And awesome. Dave is one of those guys that he gets brought up in this discussion that we're going to have right now is who are the best players that I, I guess are not in the Hall of Fame, like guys that made an impact on the game. And we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about what I call are the very good Hall of Fame but not the Baseball mm-hmm. Hall of Fame. I don't know where the very good Hall of Fame, maybe up the road in Utica, but certainly not Cooperstown, New York. <laughs> and there, there's, a, there's a lot of guys that I just, you know, I, it, I, we'll, we'll go over that in a little bit, but the criteria, my criteria before I start with the Hall of Fame is that if you don't have those magical numbers, the 3,000 hits, the 500-plus home runs, the 300 uh, wins, the 4,000 strikeouts, the whatever it is, you have to have dominated your era. So when I saw a couple of years ago that Roy Halladay went into the Hall of Fame, and you know he died in the plane crash and everything, but which which obviously was sad and probably helped his cause, but Roy Halladay dominated his era. He didn't have 300 wins, but he also was one of those guys that he won a Cy Young in both leagues. He was very good. He was one of the dominant pitchers of the 2000s. You could probably say he was the best of his era from about 2000 maybe about 2003 to 2011. You could say he's a top three, maybe top two pitcher at that time. So I have no problem with saying some of those guys are uh, could be in the Hall of Fame and dominate their era. But then there's others where, you know, that they're in there because maybe the team won a championship or a couple of championships and they just kind of were there by proxy. So, Rick, uh, we talked off the air about uh, we kind of broke it down by position. So I, you know, we'll get to Dave Parker in the outfielders category because, uh, spoiler alert, he's on my list. But I have the best not in the Hall of Fame, and let's start at catcher. Now, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I think it's worth a discussion. Is Thurman Munson a possibility for a Hall of Famer, or was his career cut short was the trajectory that he was going to be a Hall of Famer, was that one of those that he could have been one of those guys? He was the captain of the team. They didn't have a captain for several years after because of him. Uh, is Thurman Munson one of those guys? I considered that, and I will say in, in looking at this, I've had to get into this very kind of headspace uh, recently and uh, something that uh, maybe we could talk about another time here myself. Ben Chu, Russ Cohen, a couple good friends of the show here. We're working on a, a top 75 basketball players of all time project. And uh, so I've had to kind of get into the whole kind of mentality of who makes the cut, who doesn't make the cut, and who are the guys who just, you know, if they'd have had more of an opportunity, could have made it. And, you know, I, 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 to me, like Pete Maravich is a top 75 player, but he could have been a top 25 player. Like life was very unfair to that guy even before he died. And 
Thurman Munson, yeah, I mean, he was right, basically still in his prime. So he's a classic example of a guy who's not in. But again, I, I would kind of make the same kind of comparison, the same way Pete Maravich isn't a top 25 guy but could have been in basketball. Thurman Munson could have been a Hall of Famer in baseball. He plays into the mid-'80s. I think he would have been. But I just I want to put him there because it was such a sad way that he passed away. And I rem- I was on a Little League diamond, actually, when I got the news. You know, I mean, it was I just remember it to this day. But I can't put him there. I just can't. Who was who your catcher or, or ca- group of catchers or how many did you have? I actually didn't have a catcher that I thought uh, that, that deserved to be in uh, that wasn't. And I will tell you this. I mean, as far as just uh, historical atrocities, uh, there, there were lists that I was looking at of deserving and undeserving. And somebody had Mickey Cochran on a list to throw him out of the Hall of Fame. And, and to me, he's on a short list of the guys I think that are the best catchers of all time. So catcher is kind of a... Uh, a weird one there. I was going to say Ted Simmons, and then I saw that I think the last couple of years he made it in. He was in the veterans, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if he hadn't been already, I would have said Ted Simmons. But I, I nobody really kind of comes to mind uh, for me. I think most of the deserving catchers are there, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing you might have come up with somebody. I, honestly, I didn't. Yeah, I a lot of those catchers were either – not in the Hall of Fame yet, which I think Yadier Molina will probably be in there first yeah. ballot, uh, Buster Posey. But, you know, there's not a lot to go with when you talk about catchers. So uh, I think, yeah, like you said, I think the ones that are deserving, you know, the Fisks, the Yvonne Rodriguez, you know, those guys mm-hmm. are already in, Johnny Bench, all them. So um, first base, I did have a few of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a couple of them have gotten into the steroid era category. So I'm going to okay. throw these names out at you, and you probably have a couple of these too. And again, I don't necessarily agree with all of these saying that they should be in the Hall of Fame, but I think they're worth a discussion, especially nowadays when the baseballs have been juiced and the, the these guys are taking supplements now that they're not banned in the sport, but they're definitely performance enhancers. They're de- if you take some of this pre-workout on the field, you know, you feel like you can run through a brick wall at that point. Uh but to say that oh, that that's fine, but taking steroids 20 years ago was not, and you know it, it, I think it's worthy worthy of a discussion. So the first baseman of uh, the best not in the Hall of Fame right now, Rafael Palmero, Mark McGuire. I put Pete Rose on the list because he spent a lot of time playing first. Fred McGriff, Cecil Cooper, and I'm sorry to say this, but I did put Keith Hernandez on the list. <laughs> and i have to say we we laughed about this off air when you had russ cohen on and when he circled back to the point about keith hernandez i knew where that was going i knew he was going to (laughs) bring up my hatred of him for stealing paychecks and uh i listen i can't i can't fault you on the merits i mean i i don't agree and it's going to sound hard to believe that i'm not biased when i say that i i i he's one of the ones that to me is on the cusp uh, I, again, you, you know, you make good points on the steroid thing. The Pete Rose thing, I will tell you about this. We've talked about this on our show to a decent degree. And uh, one, one of our, our other FDH Lounge dignitary, Steve Callis, has made the very excellent point that, again, the, the commissioner was, was leaving it up. Uh, the, the ban on baseball was supposed to be separate from the MLB uh, Hall of Fame uh, vote here. And uh, again, they've been conflated over the years, but Bart Giamatti took no position on that at the time. And of course, you know, he's not around to ask about this anymore. 
But uh, again, there was nothing that said in the ban from baseball that he needed to be banned from that. It's it's MLB that has decided, well, if you're banned from one, you're banned from the other. So I agree with you. Um, It's interesting. Fred McGriff was sort of our point of crossover on our list of guys here. Uh, The other ones that I was looking at, uh, two guys slightly further back from him. And uh, again, I, I lean towards, I'm, I've never been a Yankee guy, but I lean towards Don Mattingly because I think he yep. had a pretty impactful He was on my list so too. I, I, forgot, I forgot when I sent my email, I had it on the list and I'm like, oh, uh, let me put that in the next email to remember. It. And I forgot about it. But yeah, Don oh, Mattingly, okay. I think was, is, uh, is worthy of a discussion, I think. So we do agree on that. Okay. And uh, one of the top batsmen of the 1970s on field and off field Steve Garvey I have him on the list mm. as well yeah that's um so I would say so somebody like Rafael Palmero mm-hmm. his stats you start looking at it and you go well wait a second here he was he's one of five players I believe to have had 3,000 hits and 500 home runs but him doing the finger pointing <laughs> that's a congressional yeah. hearing is saying I did not take steroids and then all of a sudden right. it's like yeah okay I kind of did steroids and well, yeah, he was he was one of those guys that I never really thought of him as an all time great when he played. He was always a nice player. He was an all star a few times. And he was a guy that uh, he had that really long left handed swing. But again, I never would have thought 20 years after, you know, well, 15 years after his playing career. that I'm like, wow, that guy had some of the all time great stats. He was just never one of those guys that jumped out at me. You know, what's interesting is when you talk about him, this is a guy that, uh, you know, as you sort of made the point there, has two strikes against him historically because one is a steroid taint, but the other one is, again, you and I can remember even before that, he was the guy where it was like, well, he's been around forever and he's put up numbers, but was he ever really the best at any given point in time? That used to be the rap on him. So I don't know if having the steroid rap is something he prefers because everybody before used to just kind of be like, oh, He's pretty good, but he's not great. So I don't know, you know, which tag uh, Palmero likes better, you know, steroid guy or guy who's good but not great. He well, he had the infamous feud from Mississippi State with Will Clark, and I always thought yes. Rafael Palmero all all the way up until he started achieving these milestones that he was right. always like the poor man's Will Clark. Yes. Very good point, because, again, Will Clark was a name I came across when I was getting ready for this segment. And, again, he didn't do it long enough. You know, that this was going to be maybe a common thread with some of the guys we talk about. But uh, Will Clark was on pace for that. And, I, you know, thinking back to the late 80s, uh, you know, he, he could have been one of the guys we're talking about, but he just fell off too much. So I know exactly what you mean about those two. I've, I've come to terms with Fred McGriff should be in the Hall of Fame at this point, because – you know, we'll get into some of the guys that have gone in since him. McGriff has four, I believe, four hundred ninety-three career home runs. He played yes. for many years. He, I think, he's one of the few guys to have played on multiple teams where he's had thirty home runs a year. He was always mm-hmm. a middle of the lineup guy, pretty yes. good first baseman, uh, RBI guy. Wanted to, you can't say he didn't win a championship because he he was the one who turned that Atlanta Braves team around. I mean, because yes. 91, 92, they they needed another bat, and Sid Bream was not going to be the guy for them. So they right. trade for McGriff in 93, and all of a sudden he does that. The team takes off. They overtake San Francisco. In the At the time, they were in the NL West in the final great division race, and he was mm-hmm. one of the reasons for it. He was just a scary player, and he did so for many years. And I, I think when, at the time of his retirement, I would say, ah, he didn't get 500 home runs, but 
some of the guys they've put in since him, I'm thinking like, and and if you're going to put Fred McGriff in the Hall of Fame, do it just solely based on the Tommy Mansky videos. <laughs> yes. Those are awesome. Those are really awesome, which, I mean, right up there with fellow FDH lounge dignitary John Bastow, uh, among yes. the, the great classic commercials of all time. Those guys there. And, uh, you know, McGriff is a guy, and I, I kind of don't understand this, uh, Tony, is that he tends to get conflated a lot, I think, with Palmero of a longevity guy, but it, was he really that great, whatever? I, I think McGriff was, was solidly ahead of Palmero uh, if, if you look at the resumes uh, there. And again, not that Palmero had a bad resume or anything like that, but uh, I, I, I think it's the same. That what was used to dismiss Palmero's case even before the steroids kind of tends to get used in the same way with McGriff, and he only had 491 home runs because he stuck around forever. I don't see it that way. I agree with you. Uh, at his peak, he was really uh, a magnificent player. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately uh, for us, uh, he was instrumental in the 1995 World Series, and that should count for something. Let's move over to second base. I only had a couple of these guys, and I, the way I look at it right now, I would say 0 for 4 with all of them. But, I, again, mm-hmm. worthy of a discussion that if it were up to me and if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably say none of them should go to the Hall of Fame. But – these are guys that did put up really good stats for their time. Uh, and the, the, I had four of them. I had Jeff Kent, Frank mm-hmm. White, Lou Whitaker, and Bobby Gritch. Now, Bobby Gritch, uh, you look at his stats, I think he hit like 260. Wasn't that great? But the advanced statistic nerds look at his wins above replacement, and it's one of the biggest of all time. And yeah. I, I'm not – because of a uh, stat that came out like five years ago, I'm not going to put Bobby Gritch of all people in the Hall of Fame. You know, and that's an interesting point because, uh, yeah, I, I think his case pretty much just hinges on that. And part of me understands that and understands that he might have had a little bit more value than met the naked eye at the time. And again, he was on really good teams. And that's a, a guy that I remember, uh, you know, being in the playoffs a couple of times when I was growing up, which. You know, not to be get off my lawn guy, but really meant something when four teams were making the playoffs and Bobby Gritch was playing in October uh, a couple of different times. That meant something. So you I think you hit it right on on the head here of he's worthy of a discussion, but probably not anything beyond that. And then uh, I'll jump ahead to the other list because Alan Trammell got into the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. And the way I saw it, and I've said it for several years, is that if you put Alan Trammell in, you put in Lou Whitaker. And they played together for 20 years, and they won a championship. They were multi-time All-Stars. Trammell was a very good player uh, also, but towards the end of his career, which is why Travis Fryman made his uh, emergence in the pros, because Trammell couldn't stay healthy. He couldn't stay on the field. He, again, right. very good player, especially in that 84 uh, team where they went 35-5 and five in their first 40 games. But I figured that if you're going to put one in, you got to put the other. I think that's exactly right, and I, it, it's just really interesting sometimes in sports. You have guys who are, are joined together, uh, and it's just really almost kind of uncanny, those guys being the, uh, the keystone combo in Detroit and each of them having sort of a comparable case to the other. I will say that what that reminds me of in some ways going through this NBA 75 list I've been working on recently here too, the guys that were cousins, Tracy McGrady and Vince Carter, who to me are like, cusp candidates it's like you can't put one in but not put the other one in so it's like they're either both in or they're both out and it's almost like they're the basketball equivalent here it's just weird when you get that in life sometimes you know with two guys like that but i agree with you 
Who else did you have for uh, second base? Uh, I didn't have anybody for uh, for second base. I, I got somebody where I'd give them the uh, uh, GTFO, but uh, we'll get to that later. <laughs> Let's move on to shortstop. I really didn't have much for shortstop. Uh, the only one I really saw was a guy that has been near and dear to our hearts for many years was Omar Vizquel. And the reason I think he's worthy of bringing up is, again, it's another one of those of somebody who's on the list uh, on the maybe shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame is if Ozzy Smith's in the Hall of Fame, why isn't Omar? Omar had, what, two fewer gold gloves, but still over 10. And Omar played for a long time. And I think when you talk about longevity, Omar is one of 29 players to have played in four decades. He played in 1989 with the Mariners. Him and Griffey, I think, made their debuts on the same day. And then he played up until 2012. Uh, Ken Griff, or, uh, uh, Omar Vizquel played so long, he played at the final game of the old Comiskey Park, and he also played in the first season of the new Marlins Park in Miami. How about that? That is remarkable. And, uh, again, that's one of those things where, you know, and you're very, very right, by the way. I knew you were going to say Ozzie Smith before you said Ozzie Smith. And, and that's the case that a lot of people make that are pushing his candidacy. What that reminds me of is the phrase that parents sometimes say to kids is, you know, if your friend's going to jump off the bridge, are you, are you going to jump off also? Yeah, well, the thing is with Ozzy is I think Ozzy dominated in a time. The, the, here's where I'm going to give the st- statistics to Omar. Is Ozzy dominated in a time in the 1980s when you had AstroTurf fields and, you know, those cookie-cutter stadiums. But you also had guys that really couldn't hit the ball at shortstop. Your your second baseman and your shortstop were punch and judy hitters that would hit 215, would maybe hit a home run a year with 20 RBIs, but they would lay down a good bunt, and they would be pretty slick fielders. And who was the best shortstop that he would have had to go against when it, when it came to all those all-star appearances? Was it uh, Rafael Santana? Was it Gary Templeton? You know, I, I really can't think of too many other shortstops that Ozzy would have had to contend with, uh, whereas Omar Vizquel, when it's the 90s, now you have the big hitting shortstops. You have Cal Ripken. You have, which, yeah, granted, was in his later days, but still Ripken was in the All-Star game every year. Uh, mm-hmm. You had A-Rod that came up and Jeter and Garcia Parra. And Omar mm-hmm. still made three All-Star appearances during that time. So you got to credit to the fact that he upped his offensive stats in addition to being one of the best fielders of his generation. That is an excellent point. And, uh, yeah, I had to laugh when you mentioned uh, Templeton because, uh, you know, you think that's a trade that uh, San Diego might have regretted a few times over the years. But, uh, oh, yeah. you know, in terms of, yeah, in terms of the contemporaries, I mean, it's an excellent point there. And uh, Ozzy did have it a little bit kind of softer. And let's be perfectly honest that uh, it was a, a day and age where when, you know, unlike today, when very, very few, if any, baseball players are household names, you, you could become a household name in the 80s, and everybody knew Ozzy, everybody's grandmother knew Ozzy, and, you know, quite frankly, it was a popularity contest a lot of times. Uh, guys would be making the all-star team just because they had the year before World Without End, amen. So there was, I think, a little bit more of that then, certainly, than there was in later years as well. Did you have anybody else at shortstop? At uh, shortstop, uh, no. I've uh, until we get to, uh, I have one outfielder and I think a couple of pitchers here that I'm looking at. Oh, I have plenty of outfielders. There, there's only <laughs> one third base uh, that I, I think again is worthy of a discussion, but I would say no. And I think this is one of those 
that I've been hearing a lot in recent years. And it's another guy I watched his entire career. And every time I saw him play, whether it was for Philadelphia, St. Louis, Toronto, Cincinnati, I never once thought Scott Rowland, Hall of Famer. I thought Scott Rowland, pretty nice player, good fielder, can hit you 25 home runs in a season. But I never once thought, wow, Scott Rowland. But I notice this every year when they start talking about the Hall of Fame balloting. They say, oh, you know, Scott Rowland, look at his stats. And I'm thinking, like, when I think of third base Hall of Fame, I'm thinking Brooks Robinson. I'm thinking Mike Schmidt. And, again, I saw Scott Rowland's career. He got hurt a lot. He he had some really down years. And I'm thinking, uh, he's just, I don't think he's that worthy of being in the Hall of Fame. You know, that is a very, very good point because uh, it's a thing where a lot of times it just we, we can't get this out of our minds. It's it's the unfulfilled expectations because he was, if I remember correctly, the number one pick overall. And uh, again, they didn't really think they got their money's worth out of him all the way in Philadelphia. And he kind of carried that with him the rest of his career. And uh, it is funny when you said Philadelphia, first of all, I'm thinking to myself, he's not going to say past FDH lounge guest Charlie Hayes, is he? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, Von Hayes. Oh, Von Hayes as well. Yeah. And uh, again, yeah, I mean, Roland is a guy that, again, you, you got to talk about him. And again, it's hard. We, we all have that bias in our minds, I'm sure, because one of the first things you think of is excellent career, but underachiever because he should have been a no brainer Hall of Fame. And, he doesn't have the excuse really of injuries or anything else like that. I mean, he may not have held up physically that great, but you know, it's not like he was constantly blowing out a knee or anything like that. He had his opportunities. He didn't take advantage of them to become a slam dunk hall of famer. And I agree with you, you know, conversation, but I, I don't give it to him beyond that. When I think of like, I think of him as a Evan Longoria, like using current, yes. current examples, Evan Longoria has had some really good years for Tampa. He's with San Francisco right now. But mm-hmm. a, a, guy, a guy who couldn't stay on the field enough where and, and didn't have the stats. Now, however, Nolan Arenado is a first ballot Hall of Famer. I would put him in right now because he's yep. the best fielder at third base that I've seen since Mike Schmidt. He can hit like Mike Schmidt. He hits for a pretty good average, too. He, he's a run producer. That When I think of Hall of Fame, I think of a guy like Arenado. And when I remembered Scott Rowland playing those years where there were those middle-of-his-career years where – He's playing in Toronto, and I'm like, ah, you know, what happened to the guy who was in Philly who won the Rookie of the Year? Yeah, and that, uh, again, I completely agree with that. Arenado is an absolute uh, franchise player, uh, a slam dunk guy, one of the guys you can look at in the modern game here. And and frankly, I mean, again, I don't know that expectations for Roland's defense uh, were ever on par with that, but at least as far as being a hitter, I think that's a very good comparison point of what we expected Scott Rowland to be. And then this is where it gets into these interesting philosophical discussions of do you penalize somebody for not living up to your expectations? But I don't know. When you're the number one pick overall, you, that, that's a heavy weight that you carry. You ought, you ought to be able to live up to at least you know pretty good semblance of it. Who was that Yankee? Maybe Steve Servillo would probably know this. Who was that Yankee pitcher they drafted in the first round and he got into a bar fight and broke his hand and never made it to the pros? Brian Taylor. Yeah, I knew I knew where you were going with that. That was like, what, 91, 92, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. He was supposed was to be on that, the, the Pettit and the David Cone. They, he was supposed to be on that staff and just never ended up making it up there. Yeah, I mean, and that that's a thing, too. I mean, how much better would those teams have been even so? Because he would have just been kind of coming into his own. So, 
Uh, but again, the Yankees being the Yankees, they're, they're able to plug holes uh, no matter what there. And uh, I will say, here's a little bit of a teaser looking ahead to pitchers. I do think they had a pitcher on that staff in those years that I might put into the Hall of Fame that's not there. Oh, I, I and I, we probably share that one too. Let, we'll get to that. Let's get to that after yeah. the outfielders here. So Outfield. I, mm-hmm. I put together a number of outfielders here. Okay. And again, like what I've been saying the whole time for folks listening, that I'm not necessarily saying I think all these guys should be in the Hall of Fame, but I think they're worthy of a discussion. However, I do think that there should be guys that uh, you know probably have that consideration based on recent examples. Uh, obviously, Shoeless Joe has been one of them that's been thrown around for, God, 100 years now. Dick mm-hmm. Allen, who just uh, passed away not long ago. Kenny Lofton, Dwight Evans, Tony Oliva, Gary Sheffield. And then uh, we get into a couple of the steroid-era guys of Sammy Sosa and Manny Ramirez, Barry Bonds. And then uh, the aforementioned Dave Parker and Dale Murphy. Those are all very good names, and uh, Murphy is somebody that, again, I used to watch a lot on the Superstation back in the day, and again, I, I think the conventional wisdom is he just tailed off too early. I mean, he was one of the very best players in the game for a couple of years. Colorado Rocky legend. Yeah, very much so, <laughs> and uh, he just, uh, yeah, couldn't get, it, uh, couldn't get it going. Dave Parker is one I think that I agree with out of that uh, list, Sheffield. Uh, interestingly, I have a hometown guy that you didn't have on the list, uh, a guy who I think uh, his his power numbers in particular are very good, Rocky Colavito. Oh, yes. he was. He, he Actually, I had three hometown guys I forgot to put on the list uh, to mention here for outfielders, and one of them was Colavito, another being Albert Bell, that mm-hmm. Bell obviously was on that trajectory, and another one that kind of gets forgotten, because, but he had... He might have been the most feared hitter of his generation to the like around the time of Frank Thomas, and that was Juan Gonzalez. Yes, yes, he was really uh, a guy where again he would be, I think, more of a slam dunk had he held up a little bit longer because his his trajectory there of about twelve, thirteen years. I mean, it was longer than Albert Bell's. But uh, it just wasn't at the point where uh, enough people gave him a serious conversation. And I, again, I, I give you credit for bringing him up because that's not a guy that I even really thought about. But uh, he does have a very strong borderline case, I would say. I mean, he was a two-time MVP. Uh, Juan Gonzalez yeah. was a very good player for Texas uh, from, I would say, 91 until he left in 99. Like, he played the entire 90s with the Rangers, eventually came back with them. Um, he goes to the Tigers and the Indians and actually had a very good year with the Indians in 2001. People forget about that. But when you talk about feared sluggers, and this is kind of where when I when I say that you don't you don't have the stats, the 500 home runs or the 3,000 hits, but if you dominated your era, and that's where you get into that conversation with Dave Parker and, and Dale Murphy. I think Dale Murphy was very much like, a, and again, another local example of Grady Sizemore, that I think his mm-hmm. reckless play early on in his career when he was winning those MVPs finally caught up to him. Dave Parker, I think it probably did. Dave oh, Parker's yeah, another yeah. one of those guys that you think about it, and I said it early in the podcast, is that name me a better overall player from 1975 to 1981 than Dave Parker. He was a five-tool player. He can run like the wind, even though he's built like a brick you-know-what house. He can mm-hmm. gun guys out. You, know, you want to talk about moving on from Roberto Clemente after he passed away? And how, how are we going to find the next Clemente? Well, you basically had him out in right field. 
The guy can gallop for a ball. He can hit for power and hit for average, too. He was not always a guy that just wanted to hit 60 home runs every year. He wanted to hit 340. And Dave yeah. Parker's another one of those guys that I think uh, you would absolutely put in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I think so. I agree with that uh, as well. And, uh, you know, yeah, and looking at those, by, by the way, on uh, Juan Gonzalez, you'll, you'll appreciate this, uh, a little nickname that my friends and I uh, put on him of the Tooth Fairy. We happened to be at a game at the stadium uh, back in the day. This might have been 91, 92. And I remember looking at somebody down in, in the seats down below there, and it was like in the follow-through zone of this guy, right, with his swing. And I, I said to my friend, I was like, man, I would be paying close attention if I was this guy, like the whole time Gonzalez is up. Evidently, the guy wasn't, and Gonzalez hits one, and man, the guy just takes it right in the mouth, and it just, you know, <laughs> that was bad. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, he really did dominate that era, and when I look at some of the others, when you, um, Barry Bonds, of course, and, you know, we all know, we've we've talked about it, just like with Pete Rose, we've talked about it enough, should they or shouldn't they, but the differences with someone like Bonds as opposed to Sosa and McGuire is, Bonds was a Hall of Famer before 2001. Bonds was a Hall of Famer from 19, I'd say probably since 1989, all the way up until 2000. I mean, he put up Hall of Fame stats. He was going to have over 500 home runs anyways. He didn't need to take any performance enhancers. However, McGuire started off pretty pretty solid, had 40-plus home runs in his, or 30-plus home runs in his first four years. Then he he couldn't stay healthy, and there was a number of years where he just, you know, he hit 200. I think Tony La Russa, when he finally got to 200, benched him for the rest of the year because he didn't want him going under the Mendoza line. Then all of a right. sudden he grows his hair out, has adult acne, and is hitting 65 home runs every year. And that's where you say, okay, now you've really, you've tainted that. So I think that's where there, that difference is. And, and the same with Sosa. Sosa played for Texas, and he played for the White Sox before he came to uh, uh, to the Cubs. And I guess early on in his career, I would compare him to like a Reggie Sanders type of player where mm-hmm. he was a or, – or a Ron Gant where they were guys that he could put up 25, 30 home runs and not hurt you in the field. And then all of a sudden, Sammy's hitting 40 and then 50 and then 60 and almost 70. You're saying, well, wait a second. You mean the Sammy Sosa who was an afterthought who got traded for George Bell – just a yeah. couple of years earlier, now is hitting 65 home runs? Come on. Well, and he's the man who has since proved that uh, one of the side effects of roids apparently is vitiligo because he looks like <laughs> an old man from the Catskills at this point. You know? <laughs> I'm darker but, than Sammy Sosa at this point, yes. Yeah, <laughs> any of us are on a hot summer day. But it's a thing where, in, in looking at that, this is where, again, you know, I like to say you can never be too cynical in life. I called it back in 98 with McGuire, that whole thing when he had the bottle of Andro in the locker that, oops, the reporters accidentally saw it. I said, he's kayfabing. I said, he's letting them see that. He's going to take the heat for Andro because then everybody will be like, well, no, he's not on roids. He's on Andro. That's exactly what it was. It was He was just kayfabing it. So I called it. Uh, he was a crook on that, and that has, I think, deservedly tanked his case. Uh, because, as you said, he really needed the career resurgence that kind of came after that. And as far as uh, Bonds goes, uh, it really, I, I was reminded of this doing my research, it runs in the family missing out on the Hall of Fame. And, 
it takes me to that uh, great uh, comedic scene, one of many from the great tag movie between the John Hamm and Ed Helms characters, uh, where the one guy says, I told you that Barry Bonds was never going to be as great as his father. And the, guy, the other guy's like, what are you talking about? He goes, show me the rings. <laughs> <laughs> Two other guys on that list that I mentioned that uh, I, I struggle with. And the first one, I struggle with it just because he was my favorite player growing up, but I don't think he's a Hall of Famer is Kenny Lofton. And Kenny Lofton, the reason he's been brought up recently is because Tim Raines is in the Hall of Fame. And yep. they had comparable stats, but Tim Raines was a guy. That, and I, well, Actually, I'll get to Tim Raines in a little bit when we do the other list. Um, but Lofton... I think what hurt him was bouncing around from team to team to team to yeah. team in those later years where he couldn't stay on one team. He didn't hurt the team. He actually had great moments, went to World Series. He um, he was a part. There's a whole video on YouTube. I, I recommend people check it out. It's like a 40-minute video of somebody actually did a whole comprehensive career of Kenny Lofton and how many – it was almost like a, a, a Don Zimmer type of – he was part of this moment and part of that moment. Uh, I mean, he was there for the that Levon Hernandez game where he was getting a massive strike zone. He was there for the World Series and had the base hit when Dusty Baker's kid was about to grab the bat while the play was still going. He was there for the Steve Bartman game. He was there for the collapse, uh, the Yankees collapsing to the Red Sox. Uh, you know, he was around a lot of it. And I think he had over 600 career stolen bases. He made a number of all-star teams. But as much as he was my favorite player, just because he's your favorite player doesn't mean he's a Hall of Famer. And I agree with everything you said there because I think he's just kind of right up on the cusp of it. And, uh, again, as far as playing for all the different teams, I mean, we always do forget. I mean, there are two sides to it. I I do think there is a certain stench. Uh, with with bouncing around but by the same token some of that can be mitigated by well he was also in demand too I mean part of him moving around is because teams wanted to trade for him so it wasn't always just a matter of oh so and so wanted to get rid of him but it is really one of these kind of things where you don't see these vagabonds uh, clogging up the halls in Cooperstown here I mean there are players who have been from team to team but uh, hardly any of them as many teams as him and uh, that probably should matter at least a little bit. Unless you're Gaylord Perry. Well, true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And then uh, and then Gary Sheffield was the other one I wanted to bring up because, again, another one that when he was playing, he was a scary ball player. Like, you were afraid that he was going to come out and punch you in the nose uh, if you even came up and in on him. He was waving that bat around. Uh, he had that really bad exit that came out of Milwaukee because they wanted Bill Spires to be their third baseman instead or shortstop instead of Sheffield. He gets traded to uh, to San Diego and becomes an MVP candidate, almost wins a triple crown. And, um, you know, his defense started lacking in his later years, and they moved him to the outfield. But guy over had over 500 home runs. He played for a number of teams too, but, I, I he, you know, he didn't hurt teams that he played on it wasn't like he played on a team then he went to another team the next year he signed like a three-year contract with the Yankees and a three-year deal with the Tigers and two-year deal with the the Dodgers and he was with Atlanta and he was with Florida and all these other places and you know I think of like some of the scariest people of that era I think if Juan Gonzalez had 500 home runs I think uh he would definitely be in that situation because they were the two next to Albert Bell Juan Gonzalez and Gary Sheffield were the two right-handed guys that you were afraid that, uh, you know, you didn't want to mess with them when they were at the plate. 
Yeah, exactly. And I will say that in looking at uh, Sheffield's numbers, I I went into it with a little bit of the preconceived notion as somebody who got very, very good at a very young age. Uh, I had a little bit of the sense of if we're going to reference back to what we said about Scott Rowland, maybe like a rich man, Scott Rowland of like, he wasn't a letdown, but he wasn't quite what I expected, but I was actually wrong. That was one of those things where when you look at the numbers, it sets you straight. I'm like, wow, that guy was better, you know, at a real high level than, than I remembered him being. Cause I remembered him kind of tailing off, but he didn't tail off when he thought that I did. He tailed off at about the normal sort of aging, you know, career, so, yeah, I mean, uh, if, if steroids are not a uh, part of the conversation keeping him out, then he's a slam dunk Hall of Famer in my book. Guy played over 22 seasons. And yes. he, had a, he had a lifetime batting average of .292, um, yeah. 509 career home runs. And when you look at the what he averaged per year, I mean, it, it, like I said, .292, and he averaged 32 home runs, 105 RBIs. Won a World Series. He was an all-star on a number of teams. Uh, MVP candidate a few times. I, I just go, yeah, I don't know. I kind of think he's an all-star or he's a Hall of Famer at this point. Yeah, I mean, my mind was playing tricks on me as far as I thought that, you know, by his you know by his mid-30s at least, he was really kind of like not just anything relative to what he used to be. So, you know, that's one of those things where, again, you, you have to sort of challenge yourself to actually look at the numbers. Is it really as you remembered it being? And Sheffield's one of those rare guys where, it's not what I remembered it being. He was really good much longer than I thought he was. Again, I do remember that there's some kind of steroid, uh, you know, thing there as far as, and, and again, proving all of this stuff, right? It was all just either Mitchell report or this or that, or some reporter saw you with back knee. So that's one of the worst parts about this with baseball is the complete lack of resolution on the whole thing. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm referencing just whispers that were there or Mitchell report. I don't remember the specifics of it, but uh, him not being in has almost certainly got to do with that because on the merits itself, the numbers, yes, I agree with you. He's a slam dunk. So let's go over to pitchers, uh, not in the Hall of Fame right now. And I think we probably have a couple here that, that cross over, but the ones I have – uh, more recent examples, Kurt Schilling, Roger Clemens. Uh, I'd even say David Cohn could be a possibility. Uh, a couple of guys with longevity in Jim Cott. And then the guy that the, the surgery is named after in Tommy John. And I, I put this one on the list because I don't agree. I don't think he should be in the Hall of Fame. But it seemed like every one of his contemporaries are in the Hall of Fame for whatever reason. And I have a big problem with putting closers in the Hall of Fame but this guy, just for whatever reason, isn't on there, and that's Jeff Reardon. So that's my pitcher's list. Well, and, and I think those are all uh, really good choices. Uh, some of them I 100% agree with. Uh, I had uh, David Cohn on my list. That was the guy I referenced before. Uh, Jim Cott on my list as well, which as I was writing it down, I was thinking, I'll bet you Tony brings his, him up because, uh, again, <laughs> I know, like like me, you know, you're somebody who goes back and watches the old This Week in Baseball. So, you know, from that golden era, that was a name that popped up on there a lot, as was uh, one of my past lounge guests, Tommy John. I certainly agree with you on that. And I think you have to kind of factor in uh, how really good he was post-surgery because, again, uh, that surgery hadn't been done on an athlete and have him come back at a high level before. And uh, I will say that when I think of him in the modern parlance, when I'm riding around with my dad, who's got Sirius XM, and I hear the Tommy John underwear commercials, I'm always <laughs> thinking, how did his agent let this happen? And or he must be getting a cut of these people using his name, right? I, I would assume. 
Goodness. You'd think so. And he, yeah. he, he I mean, pitched, if not, he should sue somebody. He pitched from the early 60s to almost the 90s. And I'm and I'm not talking about where some of these guys that were uh, th- those four-decade players like uh, – um, like what I mentioned about like Griffey where Griffey came up in 89 and, uh, or Carlton Fisk was one of those where he came up in the late sixties and played into the nineties where he had like an, a bat in the sixties and they said, Nope, that's a decade that counts. I'm talking Tommy John pitched for almost 30 years. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, who was the King of this, uh, by the way, it was, I was going to say before your time, but I think he might've even gotten into a game in 1990, Minnie Minoso. He, yes. he was doing that scam as well. He was the king of it back in the day. Yeah. He, uh, he played five played. decades where they trot him out for an old timers game for one at bat. And you go, okay, I get you. I, I see what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so that, that was, that was the way that it was going there. And, uh, I have an angle on this with the pitchers. That's actually even a little bit sort of, uh, you know, outside of what we're talking about here. And this goes back to one of the very first segments we ever did on the lounge was one where we did it about football. But I have had a theory that in football, at least, I think specialists should be available to be uh, in the Hall of Fame. I think Steve Tasker is a Hall of Famer. I'd say Jim Johnson, Monty Kiffin, Bud Carson. By that, uh, you know, criteria right there, I'm going to say Ray Miller, and Leo Mazzoni. I think they're Hall of Famers because I think what they did with the respective pitching staffs that they had was very, very, very special. And again, just because neither one of them was necessarily cut out to run an entire ball club, I don't think it uh, marginalizes what they did. So this is something where I know not a lot of people agree with me. Although what was funny was I did that segment and probably the only five people in the world who agreed with me were sitting there. So it flopped (laughs) as an argument. I expected to get argued with and everyone was like, no, that makes sense, Rick. So I was like, oh, crap, here goes my argument. So, you know, most people don't agree with me on this, but I I think specialists should be in the Hall of Fame. For me, the reason I I don't the reason I don't agree with that is just because I think the the reason you're a closer is not because you were bred to be a closer. It's because you failed at everything else. You're a failed you're a failed starter. Uh, you had to get sent down to the minors, and you had to get demoted to the bullpen, and you did your job well, which was pitch one inning. And I, I think that's where you get into the conversation of a Goose Gossage, why he's in the Hall of Fame, but Trevor Hoffman's also in the Hall of Fame. You say, well, Trevor Hoffman was of the Tony post-Tony La Russa era where you is what it was. It was, I got my seventh inning guy, I got my eighth inning guy, I got my ninth inning guy. There have been very good crafty left-handers to be your setup guy in the eighth inning, and then you go to the closer. And I, I kind of think that textbook managing started ruining baseball, and you're seeing guys that I, I thought were good closers, but not great, but they were piling up the stats. Like a John Franco had over like 400 career saves, and there were a lot of guys that you're like, wait, this guy has – Really? Are you really? So, uh, I'm not of the belief of putting a closer in the Hall of Fame. It, but if I make an exception, it would be Mariano Rivera because he did it over 600 times, way more than anybody else. But when I see Lee Smith is in the Hall of Fame, Bruce Suter, Bruce Suter, look at his career. It really right. didn't last that long. And in fact, right. it, Bruce Suter just his salary just got off the books because he had a deferred salary like Bobby Bonilla with the Atlanta Braves for the last 30-plus years. But he did nothing with Atlanta. Bruce Suter, very good closer for a very short period of time, and you see a lot of these closers start to flame out. But my whole thing with Jeff Reardon is Jeff Reardon was also a guy that 
he was the all-time saves leader, going neck and neck with Lee Smith for a little bit, and then I think his arm just like basically fell off, and Lee Smith eventually overtook him. Um, but it was weird how he's not in the Hall of Fame, but and he won a World Series with Minnesota, so it's not not like you can't use that against him either. But these closers that start getting in there because they pitched one inning, I'm like, nah. I like I'm hearing people say, oh, Billy Wagner should be in the Hall of Fame. Why? Because he pitched one inning. <laughs> okay, he did one inning well, but did he pitch two innings well? No, because well, he only pitches one inning. Well, get back to me when he pitches seven to nine innings. That's that's just how I felt about it. Well, sure, and uh, again, and to be clear. As far as uh, baseball goes, it's different than football as far as specialists. So I don't extend, you know, to, oh, Paul Ossenmacher, one of the best lefty setup men of all time. He, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't say that. I might be a little bit softer on the closers than you are. I would take, you know, but you've got to be one of the best all-time closers in my book, not just best for your era, but one of the best of all time. But uh, as far as my, my views on specialization in baseball, it would probably mostly just extend to, uh, like I said, the coaches, anybody mm. that was, uh, you know, certainly uh, Ty Van Berkeleo would not be, uh, you know, a uh, hitting coach that I would nominate to the Hall of Fame. But how about this? Uh, how, so. how about this for a stat? Ty Van Berkeleo had one career home run, and that was off Bill Gullickson, who I believe went to high school with my mother. <laughs> Bill Gullickson <laughs> no went to high school with my mom and uh, gave up Ty Van Berkeleo's only career home run. You know who I remember hearing was a minor league batting coach, and I think we talked about this on my show, uh, was Rob Deere. And oh. I was like, wow, those who can't do teach. Uh, that's like <laughs> Bill Clinton, chastity counselor. I mean, you know, some of these guys, I just don't really understand how they how they make it in there. But, yeah, my, uh, my, my fondness for the specialists in baseball, like I said, probably just extends to the coaching staff, Ray Miller, Leo Mazzoni. Uh, I don't think, because again, baseball is different than football. You could have a guy like Tasker who was technically a wide receiver, but that's not why he was on the roster. He was on there to raise hell and to, uh, you know, give his team good field position. And he went out there and did it probably better than anybody ever did on the special teams. Baseball doesn't have guys like that. You got to produce in every realm. And on most of the guys that I'd be serving eviction notices to when we get to that point, it's because they didn't really do it in every realm. Mm -hmm. They just did it on one side of the ball. Very, very, very well. And I think the the last guy I want to mention with the pitchers before we move on to the other list is uh, Kurt Schilling. And I think Kurt Schilling is getting the shaft because of his political views and him spouting off on social media. Not like anybody here t talking has never spouted off on social media and gotten canceled sure. and fired from jobs. But, you know, <laughs> what happens? Uh, <laughs> Kurt Schilling, I mean, if Kurt Schilling were uh, voted for Obama two times, I think he would have been in the Hall of Fame years ago. But because he's an outspoken right-winger, and and obviously we don't have to get too political with it, but sure. I think it's pretty obvious as to why he's not in the Hall of Fame because you can't say, well, okay, he didn't have 300 wins. Well, neither did Pedro Martinez. But Kurt Schilling, for, from 1993 to 2004, was one of the best top five pitchers in the game. Look at his statistics. Look at the strikeout rate. Look at the wins. Look at even the losses. Uh, you know, helped three teams go to World Series, at three different teams, and winning two of them. I mean, he was a co MVP with Randy Johnson with the the Diamondbacks in '01. I mean, he was a dominant pitcher, but he's not in the Hall of Fame because eh, he spouts off on Twitter about uh, about Donald Trump. <laughs> Yeah, and, and where, again, you know, and I, and I look at that kind of stuff, and, uh, again, I 
I agree with you that political bias is playing a part in that, and it really shouldn't for anybody. Uh, I would just say as far as it goes with him, I mean, I, you know, and this, this has nothing to do with anything. What we're talking about, I suppose, to me, he's just sort of a mouth breather, bumper sticker kind of a guy. The next deep thought I hear from him on any subject will be the first. But, you know, I agree with you. It's political bias that's uh, keeping him out uh, probably more than anything. As you said, there is a very, very good case for him being in the Hall of Fame. I will just say again, uh, you know, me being from Cleveland, uh, my hatred of all things chowed. I do remember going back to the 04 World Series and being kind of a bitterman about that. And the being, bloody sock. You know what? Yeah, that guy put ketchup on his sock. <laughs> I remember screaming at the TV. Like, he put ketchup on his sock so he would look like a brave warrior. So See, nobody I said sriracha because I, I thought the ketchup was, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the ketchup could get a little thick there and it can be cartoony. The sriracha is a little darker. It could be a little bit more believable. <laughs> Well, clearly great minds think alike. You were thinking the same thing, that that was not blood seeping out as much as he wanted everybody to believe it was. And uh, again, it, uh, it's, it's kind of funny. He, he, he was, you know, again, consciously or unconsciously, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, trying to build up his mythology only in later years to, uh, like you said, I, I think, say these things, tweet these things, whatever. Uh, that keeps him out of there. I'm sure a guy like Aubrey Huff would love to say he's been canceled as well, but uh, sorry, bro, you didn't have the career for it. <laughs> Bo- Boomer Khan, Aubrey Huff, yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> so we're, we're going to move on to the Hall of Very Good uh, coming up, but uh, that is only for subscribers here on this Patreon. So if you're listening for free on the uh, regular podcast app, wherever you're listening to this, uh, please, if you want to hear more of this content and other content, uh, go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer. Just $5 a month for all of these podcasts uh, that we can uh, that you can have. I mean, there's a lot of content. I put four to five podcasts out per week. So if you want to subscribe and listen to me rant about whether anything political, social going on in the world, uh, my personal stuff or talking about radio and and podcasting in general, or just, you know, sports, whatever's bothering me in sports that's going on uh, currently, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer. And uh, Rick, uh, where can we find you uh, for folks who want to get a little bit more uh, fantasy draft help from you? Thank you very much for asking. Yes, fantasydrafthelp.com, the fdhlounge.com is uh, all subjects uh, with our podcasting. And uh, so you can can find us on Twitter at the fdhlounge.com. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's always uh, uh, great to be able to uh, come on and uh, talk about uh, a lot of different subjects. We say that uh, you know nothing is off topic in the FDH lounge, and uh, you know, nice to see that uh, others in the industry are embracing the same notion, Tony. That's right. Well, we're gonna go behind the paywall right now. So uh, yeah, again, uh, Patreon.com/slash Tony Mazer if you want to hear more of this. Rick, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Tony. By the way, I'm just going to say it's amusing. Of all the things that get paywalled, like things like OnlyFans and all of that kind of stuff, who knew that hearing two guys talk about uh, all-field no-hit slappies would be uh, something that would be paywall-worthy? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you, you know, you got to keep yeah. them wanting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>